you go into your shower feeling tired. But as soon as you reach for the Irish Spring, your day immediately gets better. That crisp, fresh, unmistakable Irish Spring scent zings your brain and awakens your senses. So when you finally emerge from the shower 37 minutes later, because you pay the water bill so you can stay in there as long as you want, you're ready to take on the day and smell great doing it. Irish Spring Body Wash and Bar Soap. Fresh, green, Irish. Shop now at a store near you. You know that feeling when you walk into your home, take a deep breath, and feel new? Well, that's what it's like to use Clorox Sentiva. Because Clorox Sentiva smells like coconut, cleans like Clorox, and feels like energy. It'll elevate any cleaning routine to not just clean, but also make every room smell like a tropical coconut getaway. Discover how Clorox Sentiva's powerful clean and refreshing scents can transform your space. Get yours in coconut or other fabulous scents at a nearby retail store. At JCPenney, fashion counts for everybody and everybody. The weather is getting warmer and it's time to swap my winter layers for fun, vibrant, and cool clothing with so many fun things happening this spring like Mother's Day and the Wind Down Tour. It's hard to find great looking clothes that fit you just right. That's why I love JCPenney. JCPenney has so many stylish and comfortable options for so many different body types. I've been blown away by their selection and everything hugs my body in all the right spots. Refresh your wardrobe this spring with style that gets you. Something to wear that fits your favorite moments of the season at prices that feel just as good. Discover brands that get you and put style and comfort first, like Worthington and Liz Claiborne for her, each in women's petite and plus sizes. Here, spring comes in all shapes, sizes, and colors. JCPenney, make everybody count. Coming up next on Huddle and Flow. Me being in this moment and, you know, being a finalist, you know, like you know, like I said uh, last night, man. I'm, I'm just, I'm, in, I'm in, I'm enjoying. I'm one of those guys, man, that can enjoy the moment. You know, so I, however the steps go, I'm going to enjoy it as it goes. But you know, to, to hear you say that, man, I'm certainly appreciative of it. And again, like I say, you know, I, I'll, I'll pat myself on the back, you know, when, when, you know, when I can. And the thing is, man, I went out there, man. I, I put it down on the field. Now, I, nobody can take that from me, man. I played the game the way it's supposed to be played. I always try to give it everything I had. And so um, I appreciate everything you say, man. And I'm, I'm going to say this. I earned it. That's next on Huddle and Flow. Welcome back to a very special edition of the Huddle and Flow podcast. I'm Steve White, here with my guy Jim Trotter and our producer Thomas Warren on the ones and twos. And Jim, you've been you've been busy, man. We, we just got through with the Pro Football Hall of Fame finalist list down to 15. You're one of the selectors. And this list, Jim, I mean, every year they're strong. We say it every year, but my goodness, when you when you guys have to sit down and vote in a couple of weeks, I, I this is this is gonna be brutal. You know what was interesting to me while we were doing the show on Tuesday, they put up a graphic um, with photos of of the four first year eligible guys who are on the finalist ballot. You had Peyton Manning, Charles Woodson, you had um, Megatron, and you had Jared Allen. And as I looked at it, I thought to myself, "Man, you could take those four and add one guy, and nobody would have a problem." Right? You know, with that being the class. 
And now you stop and think about all the other guys who are on that list as well, who are deserving and eligible. Um, yeah, you're right. It's going to be, it's going to be extremely tough. And, and, you know, I'm only one voter and, and, you know, I do think that, that, um, we get people every year who say, God, you guys are an idiot. How did you leave so-and-so off, et cetera. And I always come back to this, Steve, there are only five modern era spots. So, and if I go and, and you know, we've done this on the show. If you go to say five different individuals or more, and you say, give me your five finalists, the, the five that you would put in almost everyone's list will be different. Sure. And, and that's, that's what makes this so challenging but I can tell you this, too. It's also one of the reasons I don't believe the Hall of Fame will ever change the number of, of, of modern era guys who go in, because I think the Hall of Fame likes the exclusivity of its club and the fact that it generates so much discussion each year. Yeah. And the fact, Jim, it's, it's for the greatest players ever. And one of whom, Charles Woodson, is going to be joining us momentarily. Can't wait to have Wood on. Uh, Jim, I'm going to run down, run down this list. As you mentioned, Peyton Manning, Charles Woodson. Calvin Johnson, Clay Matthews, Jared Allen, Richard Seymour, Rondé Barber, John Lynch, Leroy Butler, Tony Boselli, Alan Fanica, um, Sam Mills, Tory Holt, Zach Thomas, and Reggie Wayne. I mean, that that's I mean, come on. I mean, that's such a difficult list. And then next year is gonna be more first-time guys who come aboard who's just gonna make this this process that much more difficult. And Jim, you know, you, you've, you've talked about it before about how Calvin Johnson's going to be a really tough discussion because Tory Holt and Reggie Wayne belong in the hall of fame as well. They've been waiting, but Megatron was kind of a transcending guy. Um, where do you think possibly another interesting discussion may lie? Cause we've got four DBs. We've got Zach Thomas. I mean, there, there's, there's again, Seymour, where do you think some of the more other interesting discussions will take place? Yeah, I, th- I think two interesting discussions will be um, Tony Baselli, whose right. career was obviously cut short by injury, um, not through any fault of his own. And when you think about it, you know, he was the dominant left tackle of his day. I mean, when he matched up against current Hall of Famers, whether it was Bruce Smith or Jason Taylor, I mean, he shut them down. And to me, that is the mark of a great player. Not only that you can do it once or twice, but you do it consistently from year in and year out. Tony Baselli was that guy. Now, the problem that he's facing is of the last four offensive tackles that were put in, each of them played at least 169 games. He played in 91. But I'm one of those people, Steve, and maybe I'm, I'm, you know, the exception to some degree. I don't place a large stock on the fact that a guy didn't play 15 years if he played you know seven or more years and was a dominant player you know seven to ten years was a dominant player impactful player to me that carries weight what he did in big games and against the great um, opponents so for me Tony Baselli is a guy that he's deserving to go in and and he's going to have my vote the other guy is Richard Seymour you know the Patriots won all those championships in part especially in their early run, in part because of guys being selfless, guys being able to sacrifice individual accolades for team success. Richard Seymour was one of those guys. You could line him up anywhere on that defensive front, and he was going to be impactful. The fact that he was a three-time All-Pro, three-time Super Bowl champion, he was an all-decade player, 
and yet you're going to hold it against him because he only had 57 and a half sacks when many times what he was asked to do was take on the double teams to create opportunities for other players. So I don't, I, Richard Seymour to me is, is one of those guys that I say in my mind is a no-brainer guy. Um, he was the guy that you had to account for. And so I think that will also be an interesting discussion of how much weight are we placing on individual um, accolades and how much are we placing on team success and being a selfless player? Yeah, I mean, again, interesting guys like Rondé Barber, John Lynch, Leroy Butler, Zach Thomas. I mean, it's it's insane how difficult this discussion is going to be. Well, Jim, on that note, let's go ahead and get to someone where I don't think there is going to be much discussion. First ballot finalist. That's former Raiders and Packers cornerback Charles Woodson. All right, Jim, now we are joined by our special guest, the Vintner, Charles Woodson, Hall of Fame finalist. Charles, thanks for joining Jim and I on the Huddle Flow podcast. Hey, man, you know, it's always good to talk to you guys, man. Thanks for having me on. Charles, I said this yesterday, or I said this uh, Tuesday on the show. I meant it sincerely. You know, I'm a cheap SOB, or maybe I should say a frugal SOB. So one of the ways I judge Hall of Famers is that would I dig in my own pocket, pay my own money to watch him play? And and you were definitely one of those guys from this standpoint, man. You brought a certain swagger, a certain energy, um, a certain playmaking ability that you never knew what was going to happen next. You just knew something special could happen. I wonder where that came from. You know, did you have that from the moment you first stepped on the field as a as a young tyke, or or was it something that was developed? Yeah, I think parts of it, you know, was developed over time. But I think, man, I I, I got to say, I think I was really blessed as a young kid to kind of have, uh, you know, a great feel for the game, have a great instinct. Um, I was always pretty fast. You know, for me, I think early on, I really understood what was the most important thing on the football field, you know, and that was the football. And so, you know, whether you were on offense and you were able to touch it, you know, you know 20 times a game, or on defense where you didn't have it, but you know you needed it back, like that was the most important thing. So I developed very early, you know, this sense of, hey, I got to, any way I can, whether it's an interception or trying to strip the ball from you or slap it out of your hands, we have to get the football back. Um, So I developed that, you know, very early on. And then just throughout my career, you know, I just honed it in, man, and it became, you know, a guy that, Anytime I went up, you know, went to make a tackle, you know, guys, they clutched that ball, you know, because they know I just wasn't going for the tackle. You know, I was trying to get the ball out too and get the ball back for our offense. You know, I'm curious, Charles. Um, look, there's no doubt you're going into the Hall of Fame. But for someone like you, even with your career and everything you accomplished, is there a little bit of nervousness before that vote comes out for the finalists or even even when we get in the room later this month and vote? Yeah, yeah, it's, it's funny, right? Because I think back to when I got drafted, and you know, the, all the projections were uh, the projections were there. You know, the Raiders wanted a corner, you know, somebody on defense, and you know, all the talk was, you know, they were going to take me at number four. And so, before you actually, you know, get into the the room, you know, you're confident, like, oh man, hey, you know, I'm going number four, right? And then you get in the room, and then I remember, you know, Peyton. I got taken, and at that time, you know, it was 15 minutes, and teams were taking all 15 minutes. And then all of a sudden, I was like, 
oh man, I don't know what's gonna happen. You know, I got I start getting I got I start getting real jittery, and I'm like, man, what if I'm what if I'm here in this room and they don't call my name, and I I'm here, and my family's here, they're gonna have the camera on me the whole time. Like I, I was really thinking about that, man. So, you know, right now I'm, I'm actually pretty cool right now, but I know that you know when it comes to that time and and i'm waiting on you know the phone however it's done this year whether it's a phone call or you know they knock or whatever it's gonna be it's gonna happen and all of a sudden i'm i'm gonna be sitting there like you know what's, what's about to happen you know my family's gonna be with me my, my kids my wife they're expecting it to happen and it's like so yeah the, the nervousness it, it'll be there man that's just i think that's a natural thing how soon do players, particularly elite players, start thinking about Hall of Fame? You know, I think it I think it depends. Um, I think, you know, for somebody like myself, I feel like, you know, people have been asking me about the Hall of Fame for the last, you know, 15 years. I've been done five now, so just say, you know, eight years into me playing, hey, you think you're a Hall of Fame player? You know, it's like, I don't know, I'm, I'm still playing the game, you know what I mean? So... It's kind of like in the back of your mind, you know, you kind of think about it. But I think you know, once you really hang it up and put it down and the clock starts rolling, then I think you think about it a little more, you know. And it's like if you run into guys, like I run into Warren Sapp, you know, from time to time, and he's like, hey, man, you ain't got much longer, man. The clock is ticking. And so you you, you start thinking about it. And, uh, you know, now, now that it's been five years, first I think – Wow, it's been five years since I've been out of the NFL. And then it's like, hey man, you you got a shot to you know put that jacket on. So, you know, I, mean, I think it kind of depends on the player, you know, when and, and where you start thinking about it. Yeah, look, when you got when you've got a Super Bowl, when you got a Defensive Player of the Year, when you've got a Defensive Rookie of the Year, you've won the Heisman in college. I mean, look at the number: sixty-five picks, thirty-three forced fumbles. You talk about getting your your, your hands on the ball. But Jim said something interesting, and that's talking about paying for, paying to see a player. And you don't hear that often about defensive players. You heard it about Lawrence Taylor. You heard it about Junior Seau. You heard it about yourself. Is there a, a defensive player, whether you played against, whether you grew up watching, whether someone you're seeing on the field now, who you would say, I, I would pay to see that guy play 16 games a year? Yeah, I think there's a couple of guys, um, you know, a couple of uh, – former guys, guys that are in the Hall of Fame. And I, I let those guys, I let these guys know it all the time, but Ed Reed and Ray Lewis, um, those guys played on the same team. You know, those are guys, man, that, you know, while I was playing, if they were playing on, you know, Monday night or, or they went, you know, we didn't have a game or we had a bye and they were on, I was checking those guys out, man, because I just loved the way they played the game. You know, Ed, of course, you know, for me, I love anybody that can get the football. You know, that's like that's my deal. You know, and so, and then Ray, and then Ray is just Ray. You know, what I mean, he was he was the you know that linebacker that you watched. That you know, when we talk about linebackers, you know, now being sideline to sideline and you know tenacious and and have that leadership quality. You know, Ray was the guy. Um, I think now, man, Aaron Donald is like. I mean, I feel like I'm I'm an artist, dude. You know, to be honest, you know, to, to watch the way he uh, plays the game, um, the fact that, you know, teams, you can't block him. It's, it's funny to watch games and, and, and watch how many times you see, you know, them commit, you know, two players to try to keep him from getting to the backfield. And he still ends up, you know, using his hands to knife through guys and still make the sack. To have as many sacks as he he's had, you know, from, from the interior line, 
you know, to me, he's the, you know, when you think about, go back to another Hall of Famer I mentioned earlier, Warren Sapp, he would be another guy. Like, he's he's that player. You know what I mean? So those, those are guys, man, that I, I, I cough that money up quick, man, and say, hey, we got to go, go see this guy play. You know, Charles, you just paid him a tremendous compliment. I wonder who has paid a compliment to you that has resonated or stuck with you most? There's, there's uh, You guys know uh, Wayne Larrabee with, with the Green Bay Packers? Yeah. I love um, him. Yeah. yeah. You know, just just one day, I forget what, what, what I, I was back in Green Bay. I can't, I can't remember what it was for. Um, but he, he just, you know, in passing, he was like, Charles, man, I just – you know, I want to tell you, man, I, I enjoy the way you play. And he said, you know, you're the type of player that, that could have played for Vince Lombardi. Huh. And I was like, wow. You know what I mean? Because, I mean, we, we all revere, revere the name Vince Lombardi. I, you know, at that point, you know, I had played for the Green Bay Packers. And, you know, you understand the history of the Packers, um, what influence Vince Lombardi had on the game of football. You know, when you win the Super Bowl, you know, you want to hold up the Lombardi trophy. So to me, that was like that was like the ultimate uh, comment, you know, that I could receive from anybody. You know, here I am playing in our era, which is the modern era. And, to, and then to have somebody who, um, you know, witness, you know, that era to say, hey, you know, you could have played for, you know, what many would say is the greatest, you know, coach of all time. So that was that was a huge compliment for me. You know, Charles, what's what's interesting to me, um, besides the playmaking ability of your career, which you'll always be known for, but with sort of that second career you got, the development. And I know on the Hall of Fame show, Mike Silver talked about going out with you and writing that story early in your career and some of the things that you said. And you were one of those guys who it looked like was never going to reach his full potential because maybe he relied so much on his athletic ability that I don't want to say you didn't take the game seriously, but maybe you didn't quite accept what it meant to be a real pro at that time. And then you go to Green Bay and it was almost like you kind of reinvented yourself. And I wonder, was there a point there where you, it kind of hit you that if I don't change something, I'm not going to reach that level that I know I can reach. And what was that transformation for you like when you got to Green Bay after leaving Oakland? Because you're a guy that never should have left, you know, the Raiders in the first place. You should have been like that Willie Brown guy who was there from start to finish and go straight to the Hall of Fame, you know? And uh, and, and that's what I thought would happen. When I used to talk about not watching film, now I, now I, want, I will say I didn't watch as much film as I did later on in my career, but I watched film, you know what I mean? So I knew what was going on out on the field, you know, but the talk was, you know, Charles doesn't watch film in the whole nine. And a lot, of, a lot of that was me playing the game with people. And I just let him run with it, you know what I'm saying? Um, I still went out there and performed and made plays and you still had all of these different, you know, people who didn't know what was going on saying, oh, Charles doesn't watch film. Uh, he falls asleep in meetings. And I, I did fall asleep in meetings, but <laughs> I, I fell asleep in meetings my whole career. I mean, when I went out and practiced um, and I played games as hard as I could, man, and I was out there wearing my body out, you know, after practice, we get in meetings. I might have went to sleep. Um, I did hang out a lot, you know what I mean? So I, I went out, I partied. So sometimes in the morning, I did go into meetings and I fell asleep. So, um, yeah, some of that stuff is true. But as far as the, the watching film, you know, that that I kind of played along uh, with the game. Um, and, and then in, in, in Oakland, you know, I started 
later in uh, my career, you know, my first four years, I don't think I missed a game. And then, you know, I started having, you know, like, like the little nagging injuries. Um, you know, I broken my shoulder. Um, the year we went to uh, the Super Bowl, I broke my leg in that same year. And then I ended up um, breaking my leg again uh, right before I went to Green Bay. And, man, I feel like it was just – it was wearing me down. And uh, so then it got to a point where Oakland said, hey, you know, there's no value to bringing him back. And then it was like, man, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm about to be leaving Oakland, you know, and I never thought I would leave Oakland. I remember guys on the team would say, hey, man, you're an Al Davis guy, man. You're going to be here forever. And I really thought that. Um, and so the time came to go to, to Green Bay. Um, I went there and it was just it was a it was a refresh. It was kind of like a restart. Um, and I got there, you know, reluctantly, you know, went to that organization and then eventually it just grew on me, man. And then I just started making plays and we started having fun and just making plays out on the field, man. And then at that point, man, I was I was where I needed to be. You said reluctantly. Yeah. And so I wonder for a player of your caliber to know how good you were, that you were not as sought after as a player of your ability should have been. What does that do to you psychologically and what is your mindset at that point? That hurt me. That hurt me. You know, because I had I had uh I had a list of play uh, a list of places that I, I wanted to go. Um first of all, Gruden and uh Bruce Allen were down in Tampa. And so I, I really thought that was a no brainer that they would bring me down there. And I, I'd be a Tampa Bay Buccaneer. It, w- it was perfect because I had my mom lived in Orlando, and uh, you know it was going to be a hop, skip, and a jump from Tampa, Tampa Bay to Orlando. And I was like, man, this would be a perfect fit. And then I thought, okay, if I don't go to Tampa, uh, Jacksonville, and what they were doing at that time with their defense. Um, I mean, they had a stout defensive line. Uh, Mathis was was one of the corners there. I think Donovan Darius was there. Um, Stroud, Henderson, like they had some studs. And I was like, man, you know what? This is where I want to be. And I remember them telling my agent, oh, you know, we're not looking for a corner right now. I was like, nah, I know they need another corner, you know? And I think the very next week after that, they brought in, um, I think it was Brian Williams who played for the Minnesota Vikings or something like that. And I, it, I, was, I was crushed, man. I said, what is it? What is it about me or what, what has been said about me or, or what is going on, man, that the Jacksonville Jaguars wouldn't want a player like me to come and help that defense out? And so I, I was devastated. And so, I, I, you know, through that process, I had my agent, I was like, hey, call Seattle, call the Atlanta Falcons, because at that point I, I, uh, I lived in Atlanta um, and nobody, nobody wanted to touch me. And then all of a sudden Green Bay started calling and I was like, uh, I was like, Carl, I, I never told you to call Green Bay. He's like, oh, no, Carl, <laughs> you know, Green Bay's, Green Bay's calling. You know, they, they want to, you know, take a look at you or what that. I'm like, man, look, man, all right, you know, I'll, I'll go visit, but I'm, I'm not, I'm not signing Green Bay. So that whole process was, was, was crazy to me, man, because I was like, what did I do to people, man, um, that they wouldn't take a shot on me to come out, come and help their defense? And so what did that, what impact did that have on you when you got to Green Bay? How much motivation did that provide for you? Really, it was for me. It was more for me. It wasn't necessarily for anybody else. 
really it was for me um, and not the other teams, but I did want I did want the Oakland Raiders to see me play well. So it was for me, one, because I needed to, for myself, I needed to go out there and shine. And then two, the team that said they didn't want me, which was the Oakland Raiders, I need them to see me shine too. And so when I got to Green Bay, man, you know, what was great for me is that teams were, were throwing the ball at me. They started challenging me. And so that's that's all I needed because I was going to be around football. You know what I mean? I, I, used, I played in Oakland a lot of times, man, where the ball didn't come my way. And then I got to Green Bay and then all of a sudden people started coming at me. I guess they heard I was injury prone or I was done. You know, I heard, uh, you know, some people say that I had lost a step. It's like, man, I, I'm still relatively a young dude. Like, I haven't lost a step. And so once the ball started coming my way, you know, my first year in Green Bay, I had eight interceptions. It was like, let's go, baby. <laughs> I'm like, man, come on, man, let's go. And so that's kind of the way it went, you know, seven years in Green Bay, 38 interceptions. Well, I remember th- those times in Green Bay. I mean, you got there. There's a lot of talent there. Clay Matthews, Desmond Bishop, um, you know, but you, some of the coaches, right? Dom Capers, Winston Moss, and Joe Witt. And Joe Witt, to me, is a guy who doesn't get enough credit for the players he's developed. Because who were the corners? Not, it was it Sam Shields and Tremont Williams? When I first got there, it was um, Al Harris. You know, Tremont had just he come in. I think he came in my my rookie year. I mean, my rookie my my my, uh, my first year there. I think he was a rookie. Came in. Uh, Nick Collins, and a safety. That was the dude. Stop. Yeah. Hold on. Let's, let's stop. Let's stop right there. Let's stop right yeah. there, real quick. Nick Collins and, and, and Charles. Please refresh people. If he had not had that neck injury, he would be joining you in Canton because he was one of the best safeties I've ever seen play. He was, he was right there, man. He was right there. At that point in time, you had Troy, you had Ed Reed, and then it was Nick Collins. Nick Collins was the real deal. And just like you said, man, there's no doubt that Nick Collins doesn't, if his career is not cut short, you know, by that injury, he's a Hall of Famer. There's no question about it. This guy was just as instinctive as any player uh, that I've ever played with. We had our, we always had our own internal, you know, competitions with each other. And I'll be looking at this little young dude like, man, you think you got it, don't you? All right. You know, <laughs> let, let's go. Let's go out here and compete, man. And so we we competed every day, man. And he could run with the wind. You know what I mean? So you could, you know, you can play him down low. He could, he could get on receivers and run with them. But just just a joy to play with, man. I, I, I felt like, man, we we helped each other grow. One one thing that I love, you know, and, and Joe Witt, you know, told me that him and Moss and those guys came is they didn't just use you at corner. They played you right. at some safety. They played you at some slot. They actually played you in some outside linebacker techniques. You know, how how gifted do you have to be? And not just athletically, but you've got to be able to step in. If they're if they're blitzing, if you're kind of playing that outside linebacker role and they're blitzing the outside linebacker, you're filling that run void or something like that. That is a demanding situation to be put in. How tough was that? And how gifted do you have to be to repeatedly do that over 16 games plus, because you did that on the run up to the Super Bowl too. Yeah, and, I, and, and you know what, man, I was, I was, I was in love uh, with the way that, that they used me because to me it was just about. I, I consider myself a football player, you know. It's not not just a corner, you know. I just just put me on the field, man. Just put me 
in a position, man, where I can go out there and make plays. I feel like to me, I felt like if I was just on the corner, my overall abilities were wasted if I was just on the corner. You know, I needed to be able to blitz. I needed to be able to tackle. I needed to be able to cover. There were times where I would play nickel, you know, in the, in the run defense on first down. Um, on second down, you know what I'm saying, I might go out on the outside. They might have me on the, on the best wide receiver. Um, and then the next series, I might start out at safety and then come back down into the dime when we, when we, when we go into our dime personnel. And I would do that all throughout the course of the game. So one, you have to have a great understanding of the game. Uh, two, you gotta you gotta want to be out there. You gotta want to you know do those certain things, and then you gotta be durable because, like you said, I mean, it, it, this is a contact sport, right? That was that was the game to me. You know that that was the thing about uh, at that time period that really brought me uh, back to that that kind of like that kid mindset growing up, small town where you played everything. You know, mm-hmm. kick returner, punt returner safety receiver running back you just play football you know it's like being playing the sandlot that's what i loved about you know that so much man because it allowed me to go out there and just do my thing and like i said as far as the football is concerned i know how to get the football so if you just put me in a position man where i can make plays and get the football i get it back for you charles what does it mean to you to hear aaron Rodgers say you are the best player he's ever played with well, one, you know, that, that, that means a great deal, you know, because we know what A-Rod is to the game right now. You know, he's, he's I mean, you look at Mahomes, A-Rod, those guys, are they're it right now. You know what I mean? They're the best in the game. Um, and, and, and then also, I play on the defensive side of the ball. You know what I mean? So even though we're on the same team, he's really kind of watching me from afar. That means that he was paying attention to what I was doing, and he understood what I was doing. You know, like I was saying, when you playing all of the, all of the different positions that I was playing, you know, and I don't, I don't, you know, not to pat myself on the back, but you you got to be a real dude. And so, you know, you talked about Jalen uh, doing all that stuff. Jalen, he's a real dude. You know what I mean? So, I, I certainly appreciate that man. You know, coming from uh, coming from a Rod, you know, that's high praise. And uh, you know, for me, I, I feel like when I went out there onto the field. You know, I was always trying to make a statement. I always wanted to be the best person on the field. When that film was on, or if you were watching the game, I, I needed you to see me, you know? And so I felt like A-Rod saw me. So Charles, I want to go back to Joe Witt for a second because we're in this coaching hiring cycle. And so many, so many of the coaches I've heard now have said, I've got to, whether they're position coaches like Joe, who's the secondary coach in Atlanta, or whatever, I've got to now go to kind of that save and springboard, like get with a program where there is success, where I can rebuild my brand, right? Because Joe did great things in Green Bay, people where he was on that kind of defensive coordinator precipice. Mike gets, Mike gets let go. He goes to Cleveland. They struggle. Now Joe goes to Atlanta. They struggle. And he's like, whoo, my rep is hurt. Not like he can't coach still. If you could talk about what he did – for the players in your second year, how good of a coach he is. But then the bigger picture, how especially these coaches, position coaches, black coaches, whatever, often find themselves in a situation where they're hot one second, they go to a losing program, and all of a sudden they can't coach anymore, whereas that luxury isn't necessarily afforded or or is afforded to a lot of other coaches saying, yeah, you lost that year, but we know what you can do. Yeah, I'm I'm glad you guys talk about Joe Witt. I, I, I talked to Joe this morning, actually. 
You know what I mean? We we we, we talk quite often, and I, I'm I'm so mad at the fact that Joe hasn't gotten a real opportunity to run a defense, and and, and reason being is because I spent a lot of time around Joe when I was in Green Bay. And I was able to get a, a, a better understanding of the defense we were playing, you know, talking to Joe Witt, um, going over offenses, what they were trying to do, how they would try to attack our three, four defenses, uh, what he would do in certain situations um, uh, from, from a play caller uh, standpoint. And the dude is as bright as a person that, that you're going to be around, and he's a great teacher. Joe Witt can teach you the game. And so I know when, when Joe was in Green Bay, Joe was hamstrung. He couldn't get out of Green Bay to go out there and explore some of the opportunities that he had. And I feel like that was a disservice to him because I know what kind of quality coach he would be. And he just needs a shot. And so, you know, I've been the last couple of years just kind of screaming up in the top of my lungs, you know, get on Twitter and, and, it, and it just, you know, it hasn't happened. But at least bring him in and give him a shot, man. I mean, I, you see all kind of guys get shots and you never heard of them. You know, they get they get one year under, a, you know, a, a hot team and all of a sudden their names bouncing around. All oh, this guy's got to he's got to get a job. Then he gets a head coaching job. He like, dang, I, I'm just looking at Joe right now. Hey, man, let him get a shot at coordinator. I hate to see it, you know, for him. It, you know, it makes me angry. You know, I try to do what I can, you know, put out, you know, feelers like, hey, man, bring this guy in. And uh, so. Hopefully, man, you know, because you know what it, how it is, man, it'll pass you by. And then all of a sudden, you've never gotten a shot, you know, to run the defense. And I hope that doesn't happen for him. I hope he, he gets a shot at some point. Charles, I'm curious. Um, we're in this cycle now where we're talking about the lack of diverse candidates or head coaches and whatnot. How much do, how often do black players talk about the lack of diversity among head coaches? And, and does it mean anything when a player is making a decision on where to go when it comes to who the head coach is and, and possibly even whether or not he's black? For me, like as a young player in the league, I don't think we I don't think we talked about it very much. You know, I think it was kind of like that's just kind of how it was. You know what I mean? Me, me growing up, you know, in high school, our head coach was white. You know, you had, right. you know, some of black assistant coaches. You know, I got to college, you know, my, my head coach was white, you know, the Head coach before him was white. Head coach before him was white. You know what I mean? So it was kind of, it was kind of just how it was. Um, I, but I think you know, over time, you know, we we we're starting to see it's like, man, you know, our league is, you know, what seventy percent black players. It, to me, it's, it only makes sense that there would be more black head coaches. So, you know, guys, I think I don't think guys spend um, a whole lot of time talking about it, but I know guys are aware of it. You know, mm -hmm. and so, you know, you, you, you want to see, um, you know, black coaches represent in the NFL. I know you guys are you guys are always talking about it, you know, talking about the Rooney rule. And, you know, some teams kind of have that token interview and then they move on to whoever they want. You know, I don't know how that, you know, ultimately changes, but we still got to keep keep knocking the doors down. I think about even on the collegiate level where in the power five conferences, I think the number is there are only eight African-American head coaches among 65 schools and Michael Loxley, the Maryland coach, when we had him on, you know, what you start hearing is that players have power in terms of 
of some of these decisions being made. And so at the collegiate level, if, if elite black players say, I don't want to go to a program that doesn't have representation, then that can change things. And then I just wonder at the NFL level, if the same thing could be said when you're a free agent, you say, I'm looking at your organization and whether or not it is diverse and representative. And if it's not, maybe that's a place I don't want to play. I don't know if it gets to that point. I just wonder well, if tell, players will I'll happen. I'll tell, tell you what, um, for me, what I, what, I, what I find to be the most powerful thing that has happened this year is Deion Sanders going to Jacksonville State. You know, you, you, have a, you have a player of his caliber, um, Hall of Fame player. You know, everybody knows who Primetime is and who Primetime was. Um, a guy who's been in the coaching game, you know, for years. He's coached, you know, in high school, coaches kids and the whole nine. So he has experience in the game. But the fact that he will go to an HBCU and try to, you know, try to erase that stigma of, of historic, historically black colleges. And then if he can somehow start that movement of young black players saying, you know what, I know that I could go to, you know, that power five school or this school, but you know what, I'm going I'm to go to Jackson State, you know, or, or I'm going to go to, you know, Bethune Cookman or where, whatever it is. And then or Howard. You know, some of these top Howard University, Howard University, Howard, Howard University, or Howard, or Howard, Thank or you. Howard, or Howard, <laughs> you know, and, and start, and start build and start building up, you know, some of these schools. And then, you know, when you start getting television, you start getting, you know, those kind of dollars to come in to actually build up the facilities to where, you know, you, you, you take, you take my school at Michigan and our facilities. I mean, the, the world-class facilities, right? So if you can start putting dollars into, you know, HBCUs to where some of these young gifted athletes go to these schools and say, man, I can get everything here that I can get from, you know, one of those power five schools. That's, that's when the shift changes. And if that is, speak that on happens, it, Charles, speak yeah, on that, it. If that happens, then, then we have something, man, that's, I mean, this, 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 this goes on into the, into the, in, into the future as being one of the major moves that someone has done. And that's, that's prime time, man. Dion, he would have started that. And Charles, look, he, he's already pilfered a couple D, D1 a commits. I mean, he got his son come over from Florida Atlantic, got a kid come over from Georgia who had committed to those universities. So they're coming there. And you better believe the TV cameras and stuff, they're going to be down in, in Jackson, Mississippi, following Dion. And, you know, Jim, to kind of speak to your yeah. point, I'll never forget when I was covering the Miami Dolphins, Dion was a free agent. He came to visit with Hammer. Jimmy Johnson was coaching the Dolphins. And it came out after the fact that because the Dolphins did not put one black assistant coach, one black personnel person, whatever, in front of Dion on his visit, he cut him. They were off the list because they – so Dion was about it back then even as a player. And so, look, Dion had a little bit of gravitas, probably more than anybody at that time where he could do that. But, but Charles, on, on kind of on that yeah. note as well, what about the advocacy you've seen – from players this year, especially, you know, look, we saw Colin Kaepernick when he did it, not many folks stepped up, right? You had the Michael Bennett and the, and the Eric Reeds of the world, but now it seems like players are like, what? I mean, look what's going on in Georgia. One of the reasons why Raphael Warnock, excuse me, had won that senatorial race is because the WNBA players were wearing shirts and saying vote Warnock. What about the athlete? Yeah. What about the athlete advocacy and the difference that it makes people think it's this athlete screaming from the rooftops and you're not making a difference, but what about the difference that their, their advocacy is making? Yeah. I think what happened is people kept poking the bear, right? 
Hmm. Um, you had, you know, you you had athletes speaking up, and then you would have these people saying, "Hey, stick to sports, stick to sports." And after a time, you know, after a while, people started saying, "Hey, wait a minute, man! You know, you, you always want us around you. You want us to come to your kid's birthday party. You want us to come here and show our face at this event." But all of a sudden, when we have something to say, you know, about something substantial, all of a sudden you want us to stick to sports. And so then, what you have is. When you have, you know, probably the most powerful sports figure that we have, LeBron James, uh, speaking up and, and stepping forward, then you start giving, you know, other people the courage to speak up and say something. Um, when Colin Kaepernick did it, not a lot of people were ready. They weren't ready for the backlash that came with it, you know, because you know, once the president put put it between, you know, it was it was either you were for the country and the flag or you were for the NFL, then the guys were like, oh. Oh, no, 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 no. You know, I don't want, I can't touch that. Right. And so then here comes LeBron. And then, you know, people start saying, well, you know, maybe, maybe we can say something. Right. So I think they, they poke that bear, man. And I think what it does is it just brings about awareness. You know, we had the general, general election, you know, and then, you know, people understand what that is. You know, every four years we vote for a president. But then, you know, now, you know, guys are educating themselves as far as midterm elections, you know, and then and how that affects you around your your local community. So I think all it's done is, is really woken up a, a sleeping giant. You know, like you said, man, with Raphael Warnock winning in uh, Georgia, and then also, you know, Alsoff is projected, I think, to win. I don't know if it's happened yet, but he's projected to win. There, there's a change, man. People are finding their voice and they're understanding the power that they have. And so, also, you know, when uh, the, the young man died early, early, early this year, uh, when when the officer was was kneeling on his George neck, Floyd. Yeah, George, George Floyd. Yeah, George Floyd. I mean, it just—it's only a matter of time, man. I mean, you know, it's only people only take so much. It, it might be years, it might be decades, but when when that sea swell comes, it ain't gonna be no stopping it. Well, let me poke a different bear here with you, Charles. The tuck game. Ooh. I, I, I want to know the conversation that you and Tom have had. And has he admitted to you that that was a fumble? Because it was a fumble. Yeah, well, I mean, we all, we all know it was a fumble. He, know, he knows it was a fumble. Uh, but it's has never, he told it's never you? never, like, that? been a... No, he ain't gonna say that. No, he ain't, he, ain't, he ain't gonna say that. <laughs> no, 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 he ain't gonna say that, man. He ain't gonna okay. say that. But we, okay. we've never, we've never like, um, like had like a, a conversation like, hey, man, you know, what do you think about the tug rule? You know what I mean? So I mean that that doesn't that doesn't really come up. You know what I mean? We talk about what well, now he's still playing, so we talk about him playing and you know family and kids or whatnot. But it it, it doesn't come up that way. Um, so I, I'm shocked. You know, that I, I'm shocked that it, it hasn't. You know, now because, now nah, I mean, really, why why would it though? To be honest, you know, because it's because not if like, you guys had won, if you guys had won that game, like, there's a very real chance that you go on and reach the Super Bowl that year. Yeah, there's there's a good chance. I think uh, if we win that game, I think we would have we would have gone on to play Pittsburgh, I believe. Um, we had we had a, we had a really we had a good football team, man. So yes. um, of course, of course, we would have had to go and win, you know, two more games. We would have had to play against the Rams, and so, you know, I'm not I'm, I'm not just gonna sit here and say, yeah, we're going to win the next two games, but that is an opportunity you know, for our team, right. which was, you know, we were pretty loaded, and, and and we 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 knew we we stacked up against anybody, 
Um, so there was an opportunity stolen, but it wasn't Brady that stole it. You know what I'm saying? They, they just went out there and took care of business. True. I mean, the play was made. The play was made. The game was over. And then all of a sudden, you know, this came from above. This came from, you know, the rule book, from, from a rule that an obscure rule, you know, that not many people had heard of. And they made it fit that play. We always, you know, our thing was, we always felt like this had something to do with Al Davis more than it did, you know, anything else. <laughs> like, man, this is right. Trying to get right. back at get back at Al Davis, man, and we just got caught in the crossfire. <laughs> you know but see, Charles, if, if I'm you, I'm in your cleats, knowing that Tom's a Michigan guy, I'm a Michigan guy, that we're friends. I, I just need to hear you say it. Y'all stole one from us, you know? <laughs> yeah. I, I, I would just say to Tom, I need to hear it from you, yeah. you know? But but Charles, Jim is from the Bay, right? He he is a diehard silver and black, no matter what he what he tries to say. So he's still hurt. He's smarting over it. And then all the Patriots haters are gonna be like, if the Raiders get that call, maybe the Patriots dynasty does not go on the trajectory that it went on because that's that's kind of the play that put them in position to go on that incredible run and make history like they did. Steve, I'm gonna tell it to you like this. I was at that game. But we went down to the sideline um, late in the fourth quarter thinking that that game was going to be over. So when the game's over, back then, the interviews, if you'll remember, were held outdoors in a tent. And it's cold as hell because, remember, it's snowing and everything else. And I'll never – this was my first sort of interaction with Charles. After the game, we're out in that cold tent and whatnot. He walks up to the boot or, or to the lectern, and we said – Got to ask you about that call. What do you think? And I will never forget this. He said, it was one word, bull. And I said, right then, I said, I love that dude. I love that dude because he's just going to give it to you straight. You knew it. They knew it. Everybody knew it, man. And so, and so, you know, Steve, you were talking about the trajectory of, of um, the Patriots after that. Just to think about something. So, you know, they, uh, Bledsoe had gotten hurt and, and Brady is the, the quarterback. If they don't win that game, uh, what do they do with Bledsoe right. and, and Tom Brady? Do they decide to go forward with Tom Brady, or is Drew Bledsoe, uh, Drew Bledsoe the, the the quarterback there the next season? So it, it, it's an in- interesting, you know, storyline to play out. What happens if? Uh, but we 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 all know dealing reality how it did turn out. But th- think about how it also affected the Raiders franchise. If you had gone yeah, on. Yeah. Maybe Gruden stays. You know, maybe Al doesn't trade him. Yeah. So it, it had an impact, I yeah, think, that, on yeah, two franchises. But post-career stuff, and it's interesting because you're in the wine game hard, man. Okay, you intercept wines based up in Paso Robles, yeah. California. You got it going. How did you get into that? And we know that is, you know, you talk, I'm, I'm a big wine guy. And we know that's basically farming. And this is a year-to-year, weather-to-weather, circumstantial, occupation that can take you down or can really do well for you how did you get into that and what about the grind of sticking with it yeah so i got started in it um earlier in my career you guys know um well that the raiders training camp is in napa valley and so i was in napa valley you know three three or four weeks a year every year you know going up there and you know i just i just kind of got immersed in in the in the the wine culture you know the napa napa valley uh, the lore of Napa Valley, 
And so I started drinking wine, man. And I thought, you know, one day, man, it'd be great to, you know, have my name on the label. And a friend of mine up there was working for Mandabi, and we decided to make a single barrel of Merlot early on. And then we ended up turning that to a business. And, you know, my first label was 24 by Charles Woodson. Um, and then fast forward, you know, to now, uh, I was able to uh, link up and partner up with uh, O'Neill Vintner at Paso Robos. And uh, our idea was to come up with, um, you know, four varietals, um, affordable. Part of the reason why is because the fans always said, hey, they and they supported 24. They, they, they would buy it, but they said, hey, man, you know, you got to come up with something that's a little more affordable, man, that, you know, we can enjoy enjoy on a daily basis, you know, on a weekly basis and, and not be, you know, hurting ourselves in, in, in the pocket. Uh, but it still has to be that high quality. And so that's where the intercept uh, came in. And so, uh, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm very proud of where we are now. We're, uh, the intercept now is, I think, in uh, 45, 44 to 45 states. And we're looking to be in all 50, you know, by mid-21. So, yeah, it, it's been it's been a grind, uh, no doubt about it. But it, it's been fun. Oh, okay, so here's so here's a question before we let you go, Charles. Since again, the formal process of you being voted into the Hall of Fame has not happened yet. But who are some current players um, who are playing? And let's exclude Tom Brady because we know he's he's probably going to be there. Or if you want to include him or not, but who are some of the current players you think are on that that track to join you one day in uh, in football immortality? Uh, I mentioned one, Aaron Donald. He'd be one. Uh, Aaron, Aaron Rodgers um, is going to be in there. You could throw Tom in there. Uh, yeah. Well, Tom, that's, that's you know, that's foregone conclusion. You know, <laughs> um, I say a guy like uh, Bobby Wagner, you know, Ben Roethlisberger, he'll get in. Yeah, sure. those guys there, man, they're going to be, you know. Yeah, what about DB? Sherm will get in there. Uh, you know, if, if, if Jalen continues on his, on his track, you know, the way he's playing, um, continue to do all of the things that he's doing on the football field. Um, he's got to get some more takeaways. Got to take that ball away, man. Get the ball out. Uh, but you know, he's a guy that certainly, certainly, you know, if he has the longevity in the game, you know, he'll he'll be a guy that we'll be talking about down the road as well. But speaking of DBs, what's interesting is that Revis is coming up after you, and I've actually heard some voters say they're not sure. Is he a no-brainer? I think he'll get in. I think what people will, will look at is uh, longevity. I think I think that's the, the only thing that'll hurt him. Um, I think as far as, you know, like when, we, when you talk about numbers, you talk about takeaways, um, that'll hurt him. But he's going he's, he's, he's gonna to get in. Now, when he gets in or how long it takes that, I, you know, I don't, I don't have any idea about that, but it, it, certainly a guy that I have a, a tremendous amount of respect for because, you know, playing the corner, playing out there, playing the way that he did is that's hard to do. The corner position is a hard position. I don't care what anybody says. And you got to put some respect on that and put some respect on uh, on what he did as a cornerback in this game. Well, I'll say this. We, we, we don't have to wonder how long it's going to take for you to go in because I think we vote on January 19th if if memory serves me right and um I don't think that's going to be a very long discussion put it that way <laughs> hey man I, I, well, I don't you know I don't know how the discussions go man but um 
you know, just hearing you say it, you know, and, you know, me being in this moment and, you know, being a finalist, you know, like, you know, like I said uh, last night, man, I'm, I'm just, I'm in, I'm in, I'm enjoying, I'm one of those guys, man, that can enjoy the moment, you know, so however the steps go, I'm going to enjoy it as it goes, but, you know, to, to hear you say that, man, I'm certainly appreciative of it. And again, like I say, you know, I, I'll, I'll pat myself on the back, you know, when, you know, when I can. And the thing is, man, I went out there, man, I, I put it down on the field. Now, I can, nobody can take that from me, man. I played the game the way it's supposed to be played. I always try to give it everything I had. And so, um, I appreciate everything you say, man. And I'm, I'm gonna say this: I earned it. No question. <laughs> you did. There's no, no denying question. that. No, no question. denying that. With Charles, thank you so much for joining the Huddle Flow, and all the best to you. And uh, we'll see you in August in Kent. Hey, I appreciate you guys, man. Good talking to you, man. And I'll see you soon. Man, Steve, you know, uh, I just uh, we have so many great guests on this podcast, and and and. Charles Woodson is one of them for me. He was just a guy that I loved to see play because you knew, as he said, he was going to be around the ball. He was going to be impactful. Um, and you had to account for him. And he played with such a swagger, you know, just his confidence. Like, I know I'm um, if I'm not the best player on this field, I'm definitely one of the best. Uh, it's always fun to talk to him. And I also think there's a lesson to learn in, in his story in terms of that maturation process and how this game will treat you if you don't treat it professionally. You know, clearly one of the guys with tremendous ability, tremendous playmaking ability, and yet when Oakland was ready to move on from him, there weren't teams beating down his door, which which is still stunning to me. But he sort of reinvented himself, if you will, in terms of that professionalism and other things that were necessary to take his career to the next level and to maximize those God-given abilities that he has. Yeah, and I, and I love what he was saying about Jalen Ramsey because, again, different body types, but I think they're, they're you know it's a legitimate comp to comp Jalen Ramsey to Woodson because they play so many positions and they're ball players, right? Jalen's a big tackler. He'll do whatever's asked of him. And the maturation process. Remember, he backed up the Brinks truck when he showed up to training camp in Jacksonville, and now you look at him with L.A. He's, he's out of the limelight. He's very much into his family. He's very much into his faith. And he's, I mean, look, he's, he's seriously, he's arguably the best corner, if not one of the top 10 best football players um, in the NFL. I also found it interesting when Charles was talking about the player advocacy, how when he was there, players, one, weren't talking necessarily about playing for black coaches or the structure of a team, but also how Colin Kaepernick and LeBron, these guys have now given players courage to step out when the bear is poked. And I think that's important. And before I send it back to you, Jim, I, st- and, and you know, Jamel Hill talked about this a couple of weeks ago when we had her on the podcast, the ladies and the people of the WNBA have led this mm. charge for years from Trayvon Martin to everything else. They deserve so much credit and what the ladies of the WNBA have done to bring awareness to causes, to political campaigns, to, to whatever they've decided to put their voices behind needs to be hailed and does not need to be underplayed. Um, so again, salute to the ladies of the WNBA and everything that they've done with some of their player advocacy. No question about it, Steve. I even said today, I saw um, Annie Apple, the mother of Eli Apple, had put something out on social media that said, everyone should buy a WNBA jersey. And I thought about it and said, you know what? She's absolutely right. I got to yeah. get one of those for my wall of honor and put it up in my office because 
those ladies have been at the forefront of this change in this fight, um, even at a time where it wasn't necessarily quote unquote popular or cool. And my hat is off to them because they turned that vote down there um, in, in Georgia. And without them stepping forward, I'm not sure we, we have the changes that we have today. 100%. 100%, Jim. And, and, you know, and that leads me to also what some of the NFL players are doing. And, Jim, you've, you've got some updates on some of the causes that the players and the Players Coalition and some of the efforts that they're doing to inspire change to also make some lives better in this difficult time. Yeah, no question. You know, today the NFL is going to announce that um, there will be 13 new grants to nonprofit organizations across the country with, you know, additional funding to support closing the digital divide. And this is part of their social justice initiative, Inspire Change, in collaboration with the uh, Players Coalition. And, you know, to date, the league has provided more than $95 million to support programs focused on education, economic development, um, or economic economic advancement, police and community relations and criminal justice reform. These 13 new grants were unanimously approved by the player owner social justice working group, and they total nearly $4.3 million. And this comes in addition to the 22 organizations awarded funding over the last three years. So again, players, owners, stepping out, um, doing the work that needs to be done and making an impact in communities. Absolutely. Well, we want to thank everybody for listening to another edition of the Huddle and Flow podcast. Charles Woodson, you lit it up. You did it right. We'll see you next time. We're going to raise a glass. Jim's will be filled with lemonade or iced tea, but that's all good. That's all good. You and me me will have some grape juice. So, Jim, why don't you go ahead and take us home? All right. We thank you all for listening. We thank you all for supporting Huddle and Flow. Uh, Please leave us your comments. Uh, Leave us your thoughts on what you'd like to hear, what topics you'd like addressed, those sorts of things. That way we can give you more of what you're funking for. All right. From my man, Jim Trotter, our producer, Thomas Warren on the ones and twos. I am Steve White. This is the Huddle and Flow, and we are out. You go into your shower feeling tired, but as soon as you reach for the Irish Spring, your day immediately gets better. That crisp, fresh, unmistakable Irish Spring scent zings your brain and awakens your senses. So when you finally emerge from the shower 37 minutes later because you pay the water bill so you can stay in there as long as you want, you're ready to take on the day and smell great doing it. Irish Spring Body Wash and Bar Soap. Fresh, green, Irish. Shop now at a store near you. You know that feeling when you walk into your home, take a deep breath, and feel new? Well, that's what it's like to use Clorox Sentiva. Because Clorox Sentiva smells like coconut, cleans like Clorox, and feels like energy. It'll elevate any cleaning routine to not just clean, but also make every room smell like a tropical coconut getaway. Discover how Clorox Sentiva's powerful clean and refreshing scents can transform your space. Get yours in Coconut or other fabulous scents at a nearby retail store. This episode brought to you by 20th Century Studios' Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Director Wes Ball breathes new life into the epic franchise. 
As a ruthless king attempts to build his empire at the expense of the remaining human race, a young ape begins a journey to fight for a future for apes and humans alike. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Enter the kingdom in IMAX on May 10th and theaters everywhere. Get tickets now.